There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be home. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. The son of righteousness was laid in darkness. Amazing, amazing. Lovely to see you all at church. Uh, it's really, really good to be here. My name is Gabe Phillips, and uh, I'm married to a beautiful lady called Fiona. And we've got two little kids, Olivia and Benjamin. Olivia is six. Uh, Benji's going on four, and they're both feisty redheads, which is praise the Lord. And, uh, and, but yeah, we are, have a huge privilege of also being pastors in the life of this church. And it's the church that I consider to be the best church in the whole world. Anybody else agree with me out there? Give me, a, give me a shout in the balcony if you're up there. Give us a shout. Balcony people, give us a shout. Wonderful, wonderful, right, wonderful. Good to be together at church this morning. Welcome to Good Friday. Um, I love Good Friday for, obvious, for the obvious reason, joining with millions of people around the world as we take time to celebrate and remember the death and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and find reality in that, in, that, in that incredible gift that he gave us. But I also love Good Friday for another reason, a personal reason, because it was literally 10 years to the day, to the day, people, that I met Fiona Phillips, my wife, in this venue. We met, and uh, this incredible love affair exploded to life. When I say love affair, uh, from my side, she just totally didn't respond in the same way initially. But some of us hear God more clearly than others, but we're working on her, so we'll get there. But... Um, <laughs> No, but it, I love this back and forth with Fiona, and when I say back and forth, again, I mean more forth from me and not much back from her, but uh, this incredible, uh, this girl came to my vision, I remember uh, following on Facebook, and uh, I, I went through all her profile pictures, and he accidentally liked one from about five years before, and you nervously have to unlike that, because you're like, oh no, now she's going, no, I'm stalking. Any other stalkers in the house? Good, thank you. Wow. Wow, yeah. Cool. Can we have a, someone to go pray for that gentleman over there? <laughs> it worked out okay. We're both married, so it's good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But uh, I did that then. I remember crafting the message that I was going to send to Fiona. Uh, you, know, you know that message, the first one. This is your first opportunity to grab her attention. And I, I carefully, you know, I don't want to be too over-enthusiastic. I want to make sure, though, that she knows I'm interested. And I press send. I went to her. Then you wait. And then I waited. And I waited. So you know what I did? I thought, you know what? I'm going to send a follow-up text just to make sure she got that first one, you know? <laughs> Follow me on social media for more dating tips. Yeah. Hey, did you get my first message? Oh, Phillips, 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 Phillips. But this incredible reality, I realized that I have this cell phone in my hand. 
that has the power to send a photo, an image right now to the other side of the world, to a place that no, none of us have ever dared even dream we'll even see one day called Australia. We could send a photo all the way there and within seconds they'll receive it. They'll write lol to your meme and send it back to you within seconds back to your phone. This cellular device that I'm pretty sure Elon Musk is working on an app that can send rockets to the moon and back on, the cellular device is so powerful. But when I'm waiting for a message from a girl down the road, that phone is literally good for nothing. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, we've been married now, and now in our home I've got the, the esteemed uh, responsibility of looking after the prepaid electricity. And uh, my wife and I play this great game, and when I say my wife and I, I play the game, and uh, she is nervously watching this, where I, I like to try and measure out and eke out the electricity on the prepaid meter until the very last moment. You know, you know that moment, it's, that, that it's quite exhilarating, like, will we, won't we run out? You know? I've done the maths, people, and uh, I know I've carried the one, left the remainder. I know that I can tell you when we've got 12 units left, I know how many hours that is. We, if we turn those lights off, if we, don't, if we don't turn the TV on, guys, we can make it to the end of the month. It's exhilarating. It's, I love it. My wife, on the other hand, hates this game because she said to me, Gabe, there's going to be a day when I'll come home at night when you're not there with me and I'll come home with the kids and I'll come home to darkness. And, and, and you said, I don't want that to happen. I'm like, oh, sure, love, I've done the maths. It won't happen. Genius. I got this. Until that one day I got that irate voice note. It's happened. I've got home. The kids are on a sugar high. The lights are off. You have failed me. And I'm like, I have failed. I failed. I failed my job, my, my, my jurisdiction as, as a husband, as a male in this world. And I'm like devastated. I'm like, love, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. So then I'm busy frantically opening up my, uh, my, my app, my banking app, trying to buy some electricity. But it just keeps loading. The app keeps loading. Another pressure because I can see voice notes and question marks coming from my wife. And you know when there's two question marks, then there's three questions. And you're starting to panic and it's loading. I'm like, love, I'm trying, I'm trying. But I said, love, the app's not loading because it's load shedding. I said, love, can you go check the prepaid meter? And, oh, let me tell you, I don't get many wins in my life. <laughs> but I enjoyed that win. But let me tell you, that prepaid meter could have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of rands loaded in it. But when ESCOM says it is load shedding, those hundreds and hundreds and thousands of rands are literally good for nothing. The title of my sermon this morning, in case you have not understood, is the same as a cell phone where no one's replying. It's the same as when you've got prepaid electricity, but ESCOM says it's load shedding. It's the same right now as Liverpool's trophy cabinet. The title of my sermon is it's good for nothing. Good for nothing. But in all seriousness, I really believe that today is going to be good for someone. Because I believe maybe you've come here today and you have Good Friday. What's, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Maybe that's your world and you're trying to find reality in this, but just you're passing time, you're, just, you, you're manipulated and coming, you're just waiting for the pickled fish, you, or maybe just out of habit, or maybe here with some, some need, but actually you're trying to work out this reality. I want to tell you, I believe today can be good for somebody, somebody who's out of luck, somebody who's out of chances, out of answers, out of hope, out of money, out of time, out of energy. I'm here to preach to those hearts today. I want to preach the hope of the cross of Jesus Christ deep into every single heart. Every story says, um, I've, I've run out. I want to tell you, Jesus says he wants to run in. I want you to do something for me this morning. Can you turn to your neighbor? 
balcony people included, turn to your neighbor and tell them that you have prayed all week that you would sit to someone as good looking as them. <laughs> tell them that, people. Come on. And if you fail to buy prepaid electricity and your spouse is not is still giving you that look, just, just you know, that comment will help you. Guys, will help you grease the oil a little bit, oil the, oil the gears a little bit better. Grease the oil. It's been a good morning so far. I want to take us to the Word of God and take us on a little bit of a journey. And uh, we're going to start in some, some, a place that's so shocking. Page one, people. Page one of the Bible. Genesis chapter one starts with these words, in the beginning. And let me tell you, the Bible, when it says that, is not just thumb-sucking three words to start a narrative. It's not just the, uh, the entryway into a moralistic uh, um, pathway. It's not the entry point to start that this is what's going to happen in our lives. No, when it says, in the beginning, those words are doing something for the reader that the words, once upon a time, will do to a young audience. Invites you into something of wonder and mystery. In the beginning, is doing what George Lucas does with the words, in a galaxy, far, far away. When we lean in, knowing something is about to take place that is beyond the here and now, that we're being invited into something that's bigger than us. And the word goes on, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to tell you and make you all very scholarly for your lunchtime table today, that the, that the big idea there about God creating the heavens and the earth is the Latin word ex nihilo, which means God created the heavens and the earth, out of nothing. Colloquially, the term is nada. Out of nothing, he created everything. And this is the incredible reality. No DIY kit, no guideboard, the guidebook, no YouTube tutorial, no book and manual saying uh, how to build a world in seven days for dummies. No, no, no raw materials. God created everything out of nothing. The heavens and the earth, the macro and the micro, everything in between, he created everything out of nothing. So maybe you're here today and you're saying that relationship, that investment, that season, my faith, maybe even my life, it feels like it's good for nothing. I want to tell you, good for nothing? God is good with nothing. This is modus operandi. That's how he created everything. Let me tell you, as we go on, because one word, I know that one word can, can destroy a destiny. You know it. You can replay that one moment when a friend, when a teacher, when a boss, when a spouse, when, uh, when somebody said that into some shape or form said you're good for nothing. Maybe they didn't use those exact words, but those words crushed your very essence of being when in, the, in the space of failure, of disappointment, of rejection. You're good for nothing. One word from man can cripple a destiny. But I'm here to tell, today to tell you that one word from God can re reawaken it in seconds. And that's what God does on page one of the Bible. The, the, the scripture says the earth was empty, formless, and dark. But in that space, God spoke a word and he said, let there be light. And the darkness retreated in obedience and the light leapt forward in obedience and light became. And that was day one of creation. And God said, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. And he said, that was day one. Day two, God created the great, separated the waters of the heavens from the earth. He separated the waters of the earth from each other, and he called the great expanse sky. And he looked at it as that day two passed and said, it is good. Day three, he created the dry land and the seas. 
And at the end of that day, he said it was good. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he said it is good. Day five, he created the sea creatures and the birds of every other kind, and he said it is good. Day six, he created, the, he said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, and that is including Man United fans. Whoa, too soon, too soon, guys. Sorry, it's Easter, it's Easter. But he said it is good. And then he got to the pinnacle of his creation, where he has been speaking into existence all these things. But in the moment that he was going to create humanity, you and I, the prototype male, Adam, he changed the way he did it. He actually did not do it from a distance, not from a way far back, shouting towards his creation. He came very close, and he bent down into the dust of the earth, and he fashioned man out of the dirt, and he formed and fashioned humanity out of this place. We have a God who doesn't have clean hands, sanitized hands at a distance away from a mess. We have on page one a God who's leaning into the mess and molding and shaping it into something of substance. And then this, this, this lifeless creature found life, not by a booming voice, not by an instruction, but by the breath of God. As God, in a sense, kissed Adam to life, the face of a son and a father, finding intimacy in this moment, jumping to life. And Adam saw the first face of God was not a God far off, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. No, but a God of intimacy drawing near to the dust of his humanity. And this incredible story carries on as God says this moment, he creates man and says, it is Good. And then we get to the point of the story where he said the first time that God said something was not good. And he said this, it's not good for man to be alone. Can all my single brothers say amen? <laughs> it's not good for man to be alone. But so what God did was something profound. He caused man, Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And some renditions would say that he pulled a rib out, uh, out from him, but the, the correct original language says he opened up Adam's side, and outside of, from Adam, he pulled out somebody called Eve. He pulled out a bride. He pulled out a counterpart. He pulled out something from Adam, for Adam. He created this incredible partner called Eve. And this is the reality in this narrative. He said, it is good, this beautiful reality of heaven and earth living uh, simultaneously with one another. God walking in the cool of the day with his, his creation. Adam and Eve in perfect relational unity until sin enters the fray. Sin, as they step into disobedience and they willfully say, my will, I want what I want. And then shame comes on the hot on his heels as they suddenly realize that they're naked and they feel shame. And they very quickly are succumbing to the Satan's vice-like grip. But in that moment, in the moment of their greatest betrayal and depravity, God yet again does not retreat from them. He comes looking for them. And he moves into that story, and he preaches the gospel for the first time. And he says in Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, You Satan, you serpent, you deceiver of old, you have bruised man's heel, but one is coming who will crush your head. And then he clothes them in animal skin. And that narrative, almost in a sense, comes to a close. Now, I tell that story, and maybe you're sitting here, and you're going, cool, Gabe, that's wonderful, but it's 2023, and uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about, a lot of places to go, people see that great narrative, it's wonderful, but in my life, it feels good for nothing. What do I do with that? Where is that going to find traction in my story? Well, I'm glad you asked. You guys ask amazing questions. Because I want to tell you, if we do leave it there, the story can seem good for nothing. But this narrative is only just getting going because this is a God who, of new beginnings, a God who keeps on saying in the beginning and he's calling us into the more. So much so that we find the gospel writer John, when he comes to retell the narrative of Jesus' life, he starts in a profound way. 
In John chapter 1, verse 1, millennia later after the creation story, John writes these words, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. This is the reality. He says, in the beginning, and it was incredible, this reality, a Jewish audience reading this would have looked shocked with horror at John saying, John, what are you doing? This is a surefire way to really plummet your book sales. Because right now, you're writing overt heresy. What do you think you have authority to reclaim the same words that were written in Genesis 1 verse 1 in the beginning? It is no much more than just the start of a story. This is you inviting people into something bigger. Are you, are you thinking that you can rewrite the creation story? And in a sense, John goes, yep. Because in this moment, we realize that John is actually reclaiming a story gone wrong. And I want to remind you and I today that God is, is in the business of rewriting stories that have gone wrong. Reframing stories that have gone astray. You see, this is an incredible reality. God, who's a, a, a good God, he's a God who says, you think you're good for nothing? I don't want you to forget, I'm good with nothing. It's who I was, it's who I'll always be. And this reality is Jesus, the word, became flesh and stepped into the neighborhood and he put on our flesh and blood, Jesus, God, to put on our, uh, our depravity, put on our nature, put on our, uh, our very essence and he stepped into the dust of humanity and he started to walk our streets and I can imagine this, this reality as, as he started to march all the way towards Jerusalem for the, the, for the finality of his life. He's turning water into wine. He's opening blind eyes. He's healing sick people. Dead people are coming to life around him. There's walking water. There feels like a, an overwhelming weight, a crescendo to his life. As people are seeing, it's going towards Jerusalem. And, and all the hearts around him are swelling, saying, the Messiah has come to give us back our authority and take the kingdom by force from Rome. And they're picturing how this story will end in victory. And it's incredible. And they head into what is now known as Passion Week. This last week leading up to these moments that we celebrate. But in those moments as they were gearing up for that moment with anticipation, something big is happening, not fully understanding what that big will look like. They get to the night before he's betrayed and uh, Jesus says to the disciples, tomorrow's big guys, we need to go and pray. Will you come with me? Watch and pray for a while. Will you come and pray with me? Because tomorrow we're going to change the world. And I can imagine the boys, uh, they're full of anticipation. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're there, Jesus goes away and he starts to pray. And he's, and he's sweating to the point of blood. And he's there saying to says, Father, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, yours be done. And he comes back to find his mates, his disciples, the ones who chose to follow him. And he finds them sleeping. Heavy eyes, drooling at the mouth, sleeping wakes me up. Guys, do you not understand? Watch and pray. Second time comes back, sleeping. Third time, sleeping. They desired to do good and obey, but there was no follow through. Their apathy and human nature overwhelmed them. And when I hear that, don't shake your head at the disciples, because as I hear that narrative, I hear my narrative. A desire to do good, a desire to press forward, but falling asleep at the wheel many times over. And as the enemy watched the scene play out, the enemy started to giggle with glee as he said, disciples, they could have stayed awake and prayed, but disciples, they're good for nothing. And the light of man started to be extinguished. Then we see a man named Judas, a figure who'd walked with Jesus for many years, and he arrives in this scene, but he's given himself over to, to, the, to Satan's impulses and desires, and he comes and he betrays Jesus, but in, not just in any shape or form, but in the most horrific scenario, because as he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, late at night, he comes and they say, which one is he? And Judas goes up to Jesus and places a kiss on Jesus. 
a great reversal of the story we see in the book of Genesis. The narrative where God first encounters humanity by kissing life into him in the divine intimacy. In this moment of great betrayal, humanity is kissing in depravity to hand over Jesus to his betrayer. It's this crazy moment where you realize that Judas is distorting the plan. But let me tell you, don't give Judas too bad a rap because I want to tell you, you and I have given ourselves over to our God-given sexuality, passions, and gifts, and we have used them to betray God. We've distorted those things that God gave us, and we've distorted them for our own ends. And I look at them, and I think the enemy looked at Judas and said, Judas could have turned back at any moment, but the sound of the coins in his pocket was too big a desire. And Satan laughed and said, ha, Judas, good for nothing. <laughs> then we see the man named Peter who had shouted loudly, I'll go to death with you. I'll do it. I'm all, I'm all in. And then Peter, just a few hours later, Jesus is now being, starting the, the trial process. The scripture says that we find Peter at a distance. The great antithesis of the Genesis story of a God who comes not at a distance but close up and personal. But humanity is withdrawing at a rapid pace. And at a distance, Peter stands outside clinging to his own illusion of warmth and safety. And three times he's asked, Do you, are you not with that guy, Jesus? Do you not know him? I'm sure you're with, with, with him. And three times Peter says, I do not know him. I do not know him. But before we give Peter too bad a rap, let me tell you. I am much worse. I've denied Jesus multiple times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. And I can imagine in that moment, the enemy looked at Peter and said he could have held true to his convictions, but <laughs> good for nothing. Then we find he's handed over to Pilate and true, in true politician style, Pilate examines him and says, I can find no fault in him. He even likes Jesus, but he doesn't want to be inconvenienced. So much so until he gets to the point where he washes his hands of Jesus. And I want to tell you, you and I are just the same. We have washed our hands of Jesus more times than we can tell. We don't want to get inconvenienced. This is not my thing. It's not what I do. I don't want to get in the fray. So we wash our hands of Jesus. And maybe you say, when did I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked again because Jesus said, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was sick in hospital or in prison, you didn't come visit me. We have all washed our hands of Jesus. And Pilate in that moment could have exonerated Jesus with one word. But the enemy looked at him and said, Pilate, just like all politicians, good for nothing. He handed them Jesus over, brought him out in front of the crowds. And we see on this full display the fickleness of crowds. One week earlier, the crowds are saying, Hosanna! At the crescendo of Jesus' lives, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, we'll worship him. And one week later, they're the same crowds who are yelling at the top of their voice with hatred in their eyes, crucify him. In that moment, Pilate's begging them, I can release one prisoner, prisoner to you according to our custom. Is it going to be Jesus, the one who fed you, who's loved you, who served you, or is it going to be Barabbas, this murderer, this vile man, this one who's, who deserves death? The innocent one or the one who deserves death? Which one will we release? And to their shame, the crowds yelled out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And let me tell you, you and I have done just the same. Maybe not in as overt fashion, but I'm telling you, whenever we give ourselves over to lust, when self-control knocks at the door, whenever we give ourselves over to anger, when gentleness is beckoning us, when we give ourselves over to arrogance, when humility is demanded, we are choosing to release the vileness of humanity rather than clinging to our Savior. Yeah. Let me tell you, 
They could have asked for Jesus to be released instead, but the enemy looks again, and, and the noise started to get cranked up as he started to realize he was onto something good because he saw the crowds, the voice of the people, and said, ha, as always, the crowd's good for nothing. Then they handed Jesus over to the soldiers who stripped him, who lashed him, put a scarlet robe on him, and pressed a crown of thorns into his head. They beat him. They spat in his face, and they bowed mockingly before him with all the vile sarcasm they could muster. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they led him out to the place of the skull, a place called Golgotha, the rubbish dump of the day, and nailed his hands and feet to a cross and hung him up to die. Not some romantic notion on a green hill far, far away. No, they crucified him at eye level so that passers-by could just come and spit in his face. This is what happened to him, and I can imagine in that moment as Jesus was crucified, the nails went into his hands. As we would go, how dare they do that? Let me tell you, every time we sin, every time we, uh, we, uh, we, we deny God, let me tell you, it was not the nails that put them there, it was our sin, our sin. We are as good as guilty of putting the very nails in his hands. And that moment, as he looked at creation nailing their Savior to a tree, the enemy looked at him and said, ha, good for nothing. Good for nothing. And then we told that the finality of this moment came at noon. Darkness fell across the land till three o'clock. And Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he followed up with the final cry saying, it is finished. And he gave up his, his last breath. And we see in that moment, the light of the world was extinguished. And darkness entered the land. And in this moment, we see the very full reversal of the creation story. We're right back at page one, where the earth was empty, formless, and dark. And in this moment, a space of nothing, I can imagine the enemy yelling out, good for nothing. Heaven and earth couldn't be ever further apart. What heaven and earth was created to be together, intimacy with the Father. But in this moment, it felt like heaven had gone silent and the earth had betrayed every agenda and pulled violently out of that relationship. He who knew no sin became sin. He became the vileness of all creation, all of our, uh, uh, our brokenness, all our addictions, all our shame, all our lust, all our anger, all our betrayal was placed, heaped, and poured upon the Son of God. And He died. Good for nothing. And this reality, as we start to navigate the story, is that it does look at the, at, the, at the bare eye, to the naked eye, good Friday, good for nothing. All of this, all of this whole story, good for nothing. But the enemy had missed some crucial details. You see that everything, God is in the business of rewriting story, and he's the incredible author who uses every detail to tell this narrative. Every little moment he's pulling into the story, pulling all the weave, weaving all the narratives back into place. The fact that Jesus was born in a place called Bethlehem was not just, an, just a little addendum. No, this was very central to the story. Because you know what happens? That actually the people of Israel, the people, the nation, the Jewish nation, every year would have to come and offer sacrifices at the temple for their sins. They were so empty, formless, and dark that to every year bring loads of sheep that this was a booming economy and people would bring sheep after sheep after sheep so much so in the city they had a gate called the sheep gate because there were so many sheep coming through at this time of the year to be sacrificed for their sins but there'll be the one sheep that would be raised to go into the holy of holies to atone for the sin of the people and actually here's the amazing thing that we need to understand the sheep that were raised for the temple sacrifice were raised in only one place a place called Bethlehem the Bethlehem 
Sheep herders were the ones who raised the sheep for temple sacrifice. Not for, 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 for sale, for food, not for any other agricultural reason, but for temple sacrifice. Jesus was born in Bethlehem knowing that he was being raised to die. But the enemy did not understand this narrative as he went there. And every year, what they'll do with the sheep, they'll get to Jerusalem. And they'll get the sheep that they think is the one that's going to be the lamb that's going to be sacrificed for the atonement of the people. And they'll hand them over to different people, authorities to examine them. Different religious people to examine. Is this one blemish-free? Is this one spotless? No, no, we need another one. Bring another one. And they'll examine until they find the one that is perfect for the sacrifice. Scriptures tell us when they arrived into Jerusalem, Jesus, when Pilate handed him over, says Jesus was handed, went from house to house, being examined by the religious leaders, being examined by Herod, being examined by Pilate, until the fact that Pilate even got to the, the, the final sound and said, I find no fault in him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is the reality, the stuff that was not seen by the enemy. Because the enemy, as I tell the old story, is the enemy felt like he had humanity. He had you and I. He had the whole story of creation in the ring. And we had, we had tried our best to, to fight ourselves. And out of our own strength, we were failing. And the enemy had got us because of that one betrayal, that one, that one mistake, that one fight, that one argument where it felt like everything in your life, good for nothing, and echoed into the very crevices of your life. He had us on the ring. And he left hook, right hook left hook, right hook, guilt, shame, until we're on the mat, defeated, done. The enemy was parading about as the referee stepped in the ring and started to count us out. One, two, three, four. And the voice of the crowd all hell and the legions of demons were celebrating. They were high-fiving the devil. He was parading around on the top rope. He was going all WWF style. John Cena, you can't see me. He was like, here we go. He was so pumped. He knew he'd won the victory. Five, Six, seven, and he's like undefeated champion of the world. Eight, nine, and a deathly silence as everyone leaned in wondering, this is the end. Then the referee said, 10, Satan, arms outraised, straight out of the movie like Rocky. He knew this was it. I'm done. I'm winning. I have finally laid to rest the humanity story. But then he heard the words he thought he'd never hear. The referee said, 11, 12, 13, what's going on? Satan and demons rush the referee. What is going on here? What are are you doing? This doesn't seem fair. 14, 15, and he says, this is not fair. And this referee says, yeah, baby, it's not fair, but I I forgot to remind you who I am. And he opened up his shirt to reveal that the referee's name is Grace. And let me tell you, 17, 18, 19, when you think you're counted out, Grace keeps on counting. Because the worst day of human history, Good Friday, good for nothing, was about to become the best day of all eternity. Because I tell you today, there's no sin, no shame, no satanic power, no satanic stronghold that can defeat the power of the blood of Jesus. The blood that keeps counting when you think you're counted out. The blood reaches to the deepest stain, the deepest spot, the deepest place of rejection, the deepest betrayal, the blood that goes there. No power of man, no scheme of man, no power of hell can ever pluck you from his hand. I'll tell you why, because the hands that held the stars are now the hands that bore your scars. Let me tell you, this is the reality as we bring this into close. What do I mean by that? Well, let's reverse all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created in the Hebrew is the word bara. B-A-R-A. 
And the first entomology of the word, the first three letters, B-A-R, is where you get the names Bartholomew, Bartimaeus, even Barabbas. Bar meaning son, but the word altogether bara means out of the son. So from the very beginning, the enemy did not understand. Page one, what he saw as good for nothing, God created everything out of the son. John 1 verse 1 tells us that nothing was created besides through him and for him. It was always, always has been, always been all about Jesus. It has always been about his, what he did on our behalf, not what we can do. Here's the incredible reality I want to tell you and I today is that he stepped in this moment, the story, out of the sun. John chapter 1 verse 14, he stepped into our humanity, stepped into our dust, like, his, like the Father did many years before. And again, the point of creation, as he formed the dust of humanity, Jesus stepped in as the second Adam into that space and took on our dust. And this moment of creation, lights going on, and it seemed like lights going off, but this is the reality of what Jesus was doing. He was retelling the creation story in a new way. The new creation narrative for you and I. So much so, here is the big moment. Genesis chapter 2. Not good for man to be alone. So Adam was put into a deep sleep. And we're told from his side, God pulled out, out of Adam. He pulled out a counterpart, a bride for Adam. Let me tell you, when Jesus died on the cross... John 19 tells us that not a bone was broken in his body to fulfill scripture, but they pierced his side. The same word that's used in Genesis 2 to describe Adam's side that Eve was pulled out of is the same word that's described in John 19 to tell us about Jesus' side that was pierced. And let me tell you, good for nothing, but God is great with nothing. Because in that moment, let me tell you, when it looked like everything was done, let me tell you, God was pulling out of the second Adam, out of his son. He was pulling and recreating a bride, a sons and daughters who would be raised to life in glory. God of creation is the God of our salvation. The same God who said, let there be light is here today in this moment in the midst of your depravity, of your darkness. And he's saying, let there be light. And out of the sun, not out of your strength, not out of your own willpower, not out of your own abilities, not out of your try harder. It always has been and always will be out of the sun that he brings life. Can we stand to our feet? I believe God is wanting to do something dramatic this morning. A few, a week and a half ago, a man named Levashan preached a message at our church. And he was preaching about two years, the journey two years prior, he was on the mat, on the floor, the enemy had destroyed him. And as he was destroyed because of drug addiction, because of pain and abuse, he thought he'd never get up until he felt the hand, not the words of man, not the voice of a preacher, not the, the ability of, I'm going to try harder, when he felt no more strength and he heard grace start to count, 11, 12, 13, he felt the hand of God pull him out of that addiction. Nothing else can pull him out of that except the hand of a mighty God who pulls him out of the sun into the light. And this is the reality. His parents were sitting there that night as he was preaching. And as he was preaching, his parents came to me weeping after and said, if you had told us that two years ago, our son, Levashan, would either be dead or preaching, we would have put all our money on dead. But God, the God of creation is the God of salvation. And he's redeeming, he's restoring. He's taking us out of addiction, out of hopelessness, out of disease, out of depression, out of sin, out of shame, out of Satan's clutches. He's bringing us out of death. Maybe you're here today and I say it one more time. You say, I'm good for nothing. I tell you, he's good with nothing. 
He always has been. He always will be. Will he surrender our nothing to him and find that he is everything? Can we lift our hands to Jesus right now? Everyone in this room, can we lift our hands? I believe there's people here today who say, I feel empty, Gabe. I've lost my purpose. And I've got nothing good in that space. Maybe you say, I'm feeling formless and shapeless. And I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do in the situation. I've got nothing going on there. Maybe you feel dark, held by your sin, held by your depravity, held by that moment of shame. And there's nothing that can set me free. I tell you, God is good with nothing. Hand Him your nothing. He's taking you out of death and into life. He's taking you out of sin and into salvation. He's taking you out of the curse and into blessing. He's taking you out of depression and into joy. He's taking you out of defeat and into victory, out of hell. And He's taking us out of the sun. He's creating life forevermore. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that children of God, children of men might become the children of God.